0: I define epilepsy as fear because it just always comes back to fear. Fear of telling someone you have the condition and being treated differently. Fear that you might not get that next job because you have it. You know, fear of the stigma, fear of being judged. Hello and welcome to
1: Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Playing With Unicorns, a new weekly live streaming show on startups, entrepreneurship and venture capital. The show is hosted by Fabrice Grinder, serial entrepreneur and co-founder with José Marín, of fj labs fj labs is a hybrid venture fund and startup studio that reflects the entrepreneurial and investing skills of the two co-founders both fabrice and jose started to build their first venture-backed startup in 1998. along their journey they started investing in other startups as business angels in 2013 they decided to join forces in a more structured way and started fj labs Since then, FJ has invested more than $300 million in 600 startups with more than 200 successful exits already. The objective of Playing With Unicorns is not to be mass market, but to help internet entrepreneurs understand how to build scalable venture-backed startups. Playing With Unicorns is streamed every Thursday at 12pm EST on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and Twitch. It is fantastic and I have learnt so much from listening to this show. My guest today is Chelsea Leyland, a British DJ now based in Brooklyn, New York. Chelsea uses her platform to advocate for the de-stigmatisation of both epilepsy and medical cannabis and tackles both issues in her soon-to-be-released documentary, Separating the Strains. Chelsea has been battling epilepsy since her early teens, but the true inspiration for her activism is her sister Tamsin, whose epilepsy is much more severe. In this episode, Chelsea tells us about one of the most frightening seizures she's ever experienced. She explains how medical cannabis has allowed her to take back control of her life, and she explores the beautiful side of suffering. As someone who has many sisters... I was so moved when I first heard her story, which, at its core, is about the power of sisterhood. I began by asking her what it was like growing up.
0: I was 15 and Tamsin, actually, she started having seizures very, very early on as a baby, but really with her epilepsy, it was only, I think, around sort of 7 to 10 that it started to to, to kind of really manifest in a way that um, meant, you know, it was incredibly challenging for my parents to care for her and that we needed, you know, more help and more assistance. Um, And I think at that age was when Tamsin went off to, uh, you know, a school that uh, was for children with special needs. And so in terms of what things were like from, you know, my earliest memories with my sister, she was always unwell. And I think you know, it was, it was the norm for me. It was, um, I didn't know any different. So it was almost like that kind of period of my life. I don't remember, you know, when I'm talking kind of early years, I don't remember thinking, this is really challenging because I was so little. So, you know, I have early memories when I think of Tamsin's Health, of calling the ambulance for my parents numerous times, you know, my sister would be having kind of back-to-back seizures, which which is known as status epilepticus, where, you know, you can't, there's no break between the seizures. And that can be incredibly dangerous. And I just remember, you know, my parents asking me to call the ambulance, or there are times when I would wake up in the morning, and I would look, you know, in her room, which was next door to mine, and she wouldn't be there. And I would just know that the ambulance had come in the night. And this was just something that happened, you know, very frequently, so much so that I can, you know, I, I have positive memories as well of the Jamaican nurses braiding my hair when we were in hospital um, because we spent so much time at St George's Hospital in South London, um, you know, in the intensive care unit because my sister was always there, you know, and I remember getting so excited about getting a hospital bracelet and like it's funny how we, you know, when we're little I think we almost don't really have the capacity to sort of think about how challenging it is because we just don't know any different. We have nothing to really compare it to. And I remember being sad when she went, you know, when she went away to school.
1: And, and when was that moment when it did become challenging and you did, you it was suddenly a real, real struggle and you realised what actually, what, what, what was happening?
0: I think it was probably at the time that she went away where I felt, you know, there was kind of this, this sort of gaping hole where she was in the family and you know there was always because it was so challenging there was a lot of you know there was a lot of drama that it came with and so to suddenly not have that I think was was tough because I just knew I think my first kind of feeling was that I just knew that I wanted I wanted a healthy sibling you know and I, I, I started to see friends that had these relationships that I didn't have and I, I remember asking my mum and begging my mum to have another child you know and I, I can remember that so clearly and I, I couldn't understand why my mum wouldn't do that for me and I, my, my poor mother was just you know I'm too old I'm too old I, you know, and also she had had such a challenging time so I think you know already for her to have me was 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 very, very brave of her because I think doctors said that there was a chance that she would have, you know, another child that could potentially be um, at risk too. But, you know, she decided to to go ahead nonetheless. And I think, again, it's kind of hard when you look back on these memories because I now can look back on specific memories and think, well, that perhaps wasn't, you know, the healthiest thing for a child to go through in terms of what we were dealing with. But at the time you know, I don't remember thinking it was challenging. It's really only in hindsight, like, you know, my sister having to help my, my parents use, you know, diazepam suppositories for my sister. And I was helping them do that when she was going into status epilepticus and I was only, you know, four or something. And so, you know, that was quite a lot to be exposed to. I was always sort of playing that role as the little helper, which I do think affected me as an adult, but as a child, in a way it was, it was a really beautiful experience. And you know, it was just what was normal for me at that point. I
1: mean, when I think of me and my sisters, I, for me, they, I mean, I am the youngest, but they really take on the role of not only being a sister, but also as a best friend and also sometimes mothers, you know, they take on that, that maternal role with me. And I was wondering with you, did you feel this, did you feel at all like a sense of responsibility? Definitely.
0: Definitely you asked me sort of about the moment that things became kind of challenging and I I think there was a moment where I outgrew her and that was quite strange and I think that's the time where that sense of responsibility really kicked in where I looked younger than her physically you know my shell was was younger than her but I was kind of outgrowing her mentally and and that was really just because her epilepsy was was becoming increasingly worse and so her brain damage was becoming increasingly worse and I sort of stepped into that role of the carer and probably you know that that did affect me because that happened at a very very young age and so yeah so I think I've always felt very protective of Mm -hmm. her.
1: And just to be clear, she she does have a, a she has a more severe form of epilepsy. To you, doesn't she? But you still went through seizures when you were younger, but just not quite as bad
0: as what she went through. Exactly. So Tamsin has. We both have a form of temporal lobe epilepsy, and Tamsin has a much more severe form of the condition. You know, she's having daily seizures. She can have like up to a hundred seizures a day on a bad day. And, you know, each seizure really, really affects her, um, you know, neurologically and causes brain damage and and brain inflammation. And she also has mild autism as well. So I was, you know, cognitively healthy until I was about 13, 14, when I started to get some symptoms and then was diagnosed at around the age of 15 and have juvenile myconic epilepsy, which, you know, I have had tonic Uh, clonic or grand mal, as some people know them to be seizures, where you know you do fall to the floor and you can lose consciousness. But you know, in comparison to my sister, it just it's been very, very mild. You said before that epilepsy is fear,
1: which I found really interesting. What do you mean by this? I think
0: when I try to define the condition, you know, uh, most people define epilepsy by the seizures, and I think oftentimes, and particularly find this with, you know, neurologists um, who are always trying to quell, reduce, eliminate seizures. And I think given my work and the fact that I'm connected to such a powerful community of people that suffer from this condition, we always just talk about how it's just so much more than the seizures because, you know, in my case, for example, you know, I, I haven't had a seizure now for a long time, but let's say, you know, going back when I was having seizures more regularly, you know you might not have one for a year or two but that one seizure affects your confidence so much and and contributes to your anxiety so much that you're really sort of just living in fear of your next seizure and you're spending so much time it gets so much air time in your brain just this this kind of when am i going to have my next one am i going to have it today am i going to have it in the airport right now in front of everyone you know what's going to happen you know there's so many It's just fearing the unknown and it's so scary to wake up from a seizure because you wake up and you just, there is that period where you have no idea what happened and there's just a really strong feeling of embarrassment or not knowing where you are and so I define epilepsy as fear because it's always, it just always comes back to fear, fear of telling someone you have the condition and being treated differently fear that you might not get that next job because you have it, you know, fear of the stigma, fear of being judged. And so it really is, yeah, it really is the way that I I define that condition. It's so much of it is about fear. You know, if you imagine having one seizure and how that affects your life, just knowing that you might not feel safe alone. If you have a child, are you going to feel safe driving your your child to school? Are you going to feel safe being on a boat? You know, there's just so many things that it effects and and so I think it's really hard to have the condition and live without fear as it were.
1: I can imagine going to school would have been a really frightening time because at school you know we're at the age where we don't know ourselves at all really and we're trying to find ourselves and we're trying to make friends wondering who we are. Was that for you a a tricky time or how how did you deal with school in, in general?
0: So if I go back a little before being diagnosed with epilepsy myself, the challenges of being at school, it's funny because, you know, this took up such a period of my life, but I used to, you know, you'd go to friends' houses for tea or, or whatever it was, or other kids at school would ask, you know, do you have any brothers and sisters? Um, or perhaps go, you know, to their houses and the, the parents would ask, you know, very sweetly and politely, do you have any brothers and sisters? And I just remember this period of my life for years and years finding that question just so painful. I just I, I couldn't I could barely handle the question. And I think it was just so tough for me because I just wanted to be able to answer the question and say, Yes, I have, I have a sister, you know, and and then talk about her and and, and her sort of normal life. And I, you know, as soon as that question was asked, I I just used to, you know, recoil. And so that was just you know, something that I remember about kind of, I guess, sort of primary school time. And then I think when I went off to boarding school, I was, I was there for a couple of years before I was diagnosed, but certainly around the time that I was diagnosed, you know, it was such a shock for for myself and my family. Um, And then just kind of trying to find this new normal living with the condition. And I think being a bit of a rebel, (laughs) and just wanting to fit in like kids do and wanting to be you know quote-unquote normal as it were and it was just kind of like everything that you know I wanted to do as a teen I felt like I couldn't do anything that involved fun so it was like staying up all night drinking with friends going to music festivals where there were strobe lights even just you know going for a sleepover at someone's house and perhaps you know not having a great night's sleep because you were trying to sleep on the floor or on a sofa or you know just all of these things were triggers for me and I, I that was just so tough because i I just wanted to have fun fit in and and be normal and I think i i I always felt like I was the weird kid you know like i I just couldn't quite fit in because I always had this. You know little demon on my shoulder kind of niggling and uh, sort of saying to me you know if, if if you stay up too late if you drink too much if you're too if you're hungover tomorrow you know i'll come and visit you and i i that was tough because you know you're also just growing and learning and and there was part of me that was just kind of like whatever i'm just gonna do this anyway because i just want to be normal and and so i did get myself in a, a lot of challenging situations just from being a teen and you know, doing things that perhaps I shouldn't or just, you know, sleep deprivation is a huge trigger for me. So it's, it's tough to get a good night's sleep. It's tough to get eight hours sleep when you're that age and you're you're also trying to have fun.
1: Can you remember a time, it could be recently or, or long ago, about a really frightening moment and, and what that what that time was and that could be around your epilepsy or not just something that was really frightening and I'm wondering how you dealt with that. Gosh I had a
0: seizure when I was about 16 and I was in the shower and it was one of those showers that was in the bathtub and I had locked the door because um you know I was being a classic teenager and i didn't want my parents to come in, um, and I had the seizure, and I fell in the bathtub, and my dad was asleep at the time, and woke up because he heard, you know, he heard me, my head bashing against the side of the bathtub, and came and you know had to bash down the door, and I just, just like coming to from that, I just remember, uh, just it was so petrifying because um, I could remember. I could remember having this sensation in my hands and sort of falling, you know, and I I, I really hurt myself during that seizure. And I, I think a big part of probably why that one really stands out as well as just seeing the effect it had on my parents. You know, it was almost like I wanted to just have that experience and be around friends because then I could almost just kind of have my own, deal with my own sort of grief around it and process it without having to worry about anyone else's feelings. And I think, you know, the seizures that I had around my parents, you know, I had another one where I had a seizure at the top of the stairs. You know, they were always in the morning when I was sleep deprived. You know, just it takes everyone a while to get over them. And I think for my parents it was just always I was I was sort of the healthy child up until this point. And I think for them to have to watch me go through it all over again, they just they just couldn't believe it you know. Mm
1: -mm. And also, I was just thinking that it it also must be strange, because, you know, you have a condition that people can't see, you can't see it. So how can they how can they understand it, something that they can't see? And I wonder, is that
0: is that ever frustrating? Definitely. I think, you know, epilepsy Epilepsy is an invisible Ill- illness. I mean, in the case of my sister, who, you know, now has severe brain damage. And, you know, I mentioned before that she's mildly autistic. In her case, I guess it is visible um, and she's having frequent seizures. But you would meet her and you would be able to tell that she had special needs. And I think in in my case, you know, and I think of the close group of women that I have around me that also have the condition you know I I've started a, a group I a, brought this incredible group of women together some that have epilepsy and some are mothers of children that have epilepsy one thing that you know we always discuss is just this real challenge in trying to find that balance of you know you don't really want to tell everyone that you have epilepsy you don't really want to wear it on your sleeve because you're trying to just get on with it and and sort of live a, uh, a you know a fairly peaceful and, and normal life, but at the same time, for your own safety and to make sure that you feel protected, particularly if, if if you're having a bad day, it is important that you tell people. But I think, you know, I always thought it was a kind of I I, I had this funny moment where I sort of came out, you know, I came out the closet, and and for years I hadn't really. You know, told many people that I had epilepsy, I very much suffered in silence. And so that moment where I really, you know, decided to kind of come out and use the platform that I had to to share my journey, that was strange, because I think I had a lot of fear around the fact that, you know, what were people going to think? Were people really going to understand this? Because they just see me and think, you know, she's completely normal. And I think especially when you put on a bit of a tough exterior, and you're kind of like, you know, I'm strong. And, I, I don't want to let anything get in my way in, in that respect. And so, you know, I think you almost go at life with more kind of oomph, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that was a strange moment for me because I, I, I just didn't really know how it was going to land with people. I think I was like, are, are people going to think that, are they not going to believe me or are they going, you know? And then there's times too where I found myself in situations where I have had to share with someone, you know, I have, it's maybe, you know, when I spent, the better part of 10 years DJing there were moments where I had been on a long haul flight and I hadn't slept enough and I you know it was sort of like the red light goes on and you're like I'm in the danger zone I need to tell someone in case something happens and I think it's always just that weird moment of trying to express that or share that with someone um, and seeing the fear on their face but seeing the confusion because they're looking at you and thinking I know you and you know something my father always says is like it's such a strange thing with epilepsy because you think you know someone until you see them have their first seizure, and most people that I know, most of my friends haven't seen me have a seizure. So that's also something that's quite tough because you're, especially when my work has been so surrounded by it. You know, it's I often think like, are people thinking that I haven't really suffered, or you know, because if they haven't seen that seizure, I don't think they can understand. And I think when people see the seizure, then, then they start to realise you know what you've been living with, and so it's it's incredibly hard to articulate an invisible illness uh, unless Mm. someone really understands it
1: and also that thing of being labeled or being dictated by something or or by an illness you know I I hate being labeled for anything you know because we as human beings are, are so much more than just one thing or one experience that happens to us and for you you are so much more than just someone who has epilepsy and when you were just talking about coming out, I, I really understand that because of, of people sort of not not labelling you, I guess, and not wanting to have a, have
0: a label on you. Epilepsy is definitely, it's, it's, it's not a glamorous condition, you know, it's not, it is heavily stigmatised for many different reasons. I mean, you know, if you look at the kind of history of epilepsy and the fact that for m- many, many years, and there's still places all over the world where people believe that it's due to demonic possession. And, you know, I think it was only until, believe 1972 or 1979 that um, being epileptic was a reason that you couldn't get married. Um, Like the history is just so crazy how we've treated people with epilepsy. We thought it was contagious. We used to lock people up with that had a condition. I mean, you know, really, really treated people with epilepsy terribly for many many years and i think it comes with this stigma it's also not very attractive to see someone have a seizure it's very frightening i think epileptics worry so much about what people think you know just the fear of of being exposed having a seizure in front of people you know losing control of their bladder that's something that's super common biting their lip bleeding you know your eyes roll into in, the back of your head um you know you make a funny choking sound like it's it's really frightening to watch someone have a seizure. But one thing is for sure is that it's a million times more frightening to have the seizure. And so that was just is, is something that I find tough because people with this condition spend so long worrying what people are going to think and worrying about their fear, you know, and oftentimes when we see people on the floor, we presume that they're a drunk or they've overdosed on drugs. And I think, again, that's something that's really tough because you know, I've seen that when I've been out in public before um, someone having a seizure and, and you know, this has happened to me about two or three times throughout my life where complete strangers have had seizures and people just leave them because they're just they're just petrified um, and they they don't want to go near someone that they think, you know, is 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 a drug addict or um, and I, I and I've and I've been able to recognize this person's having a seizure and you must protect their head and you must, you know, you know what to do when someone's having a seizure. But I just think again, it all comes back to education, doesn't it really? Like if we can educate people uh, and, uh, you know, I went to a primary school when I was growing up that accepted children with special needs. And obviously, you know, that would have always been my world, but I I meet people now that went to this school and their understanding, um, and I think the way that they've gone through life, you know, understanding how people struggle with different um conditions and 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 those that have special needs is so different because they were exposed to it from a young age i just think things like that really really change the way we perceive you know other people with special needs and just being a little bit more empathetic and and i guess knowing what to do i mean you know this condition one in 20 people have epilepsy like we we should we should be able to recognize it you know and just imagine that could be you on the floor there you know in the airport alone without anyone to look after you how would you want to be treated you know so I think a lot of it comes back to education people fear the unknown I I was
1: at a wedding once and um oh this was about two years ago and one of my friends had a seizure right in the middle of the wedding when oh, my gosh. my two friends were saying their vows and it was really frightening and it was that sense of no one knew what to do and luckily there was a there was a doctor there or it could have been a nurse I can't remember but um it was really frightening so that's the only experience I've had with actually seeing someone in that situation and yeah it's the it's the it's the not knowing isn't it it's the it's it was really yeah frightening I mean much more obviously frightening for him
0: but that it's such a prime example for you know that everyone around at that wedding would have been would have been afraid, especially if people hadn't, you know, seen someone have a seizure before, or if they didn't know what to do. And of course, it really shifts and changes the mood. And so, you know, your poor friend who had the seizure came to was probably thinking, not only have I ruined this wedding for everyone, but you know, I've, I, I don't know what I looked like during that time I was having the seizure. Like, how embarrassing? How, you know, I. It just makes you really, really go into the kind of, you know, the the self hate. And then, then you lose your confidence for the sort of next chapter of your life. And I, you know, I always say it takes about a year to recover from one seizure just to get your confidence back. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's really really takes it out of you.
1: I want to talk about your adult fears, fears because you, you, we went and became a DJ, and for me, looking on at that, I think you have to have a lot of confidence to do that. So I'm wondering how that came about, and if your fears increased in any way of like having, you know, seizures
0: in public increased. I mean, it's quite funny, isn't it? It's quite ironic, an epileptic DJ. <laughs> um, it's it. It, it always makes people laugh. It still kind of makes me laugh because it is probably the most poorly suited career path that someone with epilepsy could choose. <laughs> but I always laugh about it because I just sort of say, I think it, it gives, you know, I guess it kind of gives the story a little bit more colour and texture. And, um, you know, I the way that I look back on it now is really that the DJing was just a platform I mean, of course it was an, a most incredible experience, but I think it, it gave me a platform to be able to do the work I'm doing now, if that makes sense. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was certainly a crazy journey. I think that I very much wore this exterior of being a confident person that was a strong character, you know, very driven, and wasn't gonna let anything get in my way, including my condition. But I think I think that all caught up with me, if I'm honest. You know, I was definitely suffering behind closed doors. Like I said, traveling, I used to travel a lot. I mean, there was a period in my life where I was on a flight up to three times a week. And that was incredibly trying on my body. If I wasn't having the seizure, I, I was having an aura, which is a sort of pre-seizure feeling. And, you know, I just kind of kept telling myself that all of it was worth it because I was getting to DJ for a living. And, um, you know, and it was an incredible experience. But I I think I didn't have the maturity to recognize, or perhaps I wasn't connected with my body enough to to sort of say, this isn't, this isn't good for me right now. Or like, I need a rest, I need to take some time off, I was just pushing and pushing and going at life. And, you know, I think if I knew then what I knew now, I would have, I would have addressed it very differently. But, you know, I had a lot of fun, I started DJ, I moved to New York from London. When I was about nineteen, I think I started DJing when I was about twenty, twenty-one. Predominantly working in the fashion and art space, and it was, you know, it was a very glamorous life. I was traveling a lot. I was getting to DJ incredible parties. I would curate music for runway shows. I it was it was really really sparkly, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but... and and staying in nice hotels and. Um, it became tougher uh, as, I, as I got older. Um, I think for me, the way that I look at it now was, you know, I was changing within myself and I wanted to connect more, I think, with who I was in my spirit. And that was somebody that A, had epilepsy themselves and knew what it was like to suffer and had grown up with a really, severely disabled sister and really wanted to try and help her and wanted to give something back and had a burning desire to help people and to be of service and I, I know that comes from the fact that ultimately I I can't really help my sister you know I, I have I am trying every day and as my family is but unfortunately the harsh reality is that you know, it is too late because she does have severe brain damage from having seizures her whole life. And I think, you know, not being able to help goes back to, you know, your original point, which is, you know, the love that you feel for your your siblings, your family is greater than anything and is incredibly painful not being able to help the one person that you love. And, you know, there's, there's so many layered and complex emotions around it. I feel a lot of guilt, I think, deep down because... Of the way that she is and the fact that life's been a lot easier for me but not being able to help her i think really drives my desire to want to help other people and i think suffering is is, is such an interesting one to explore just because i think it makes us better people i think you know i always joke about making friends I'm like you know people have had to have a a lot of life shit in order for me to really connect with them deeply but you know I joke about it but I think there's something to be said for that you know people that have had really challenging journeys tend to be you know they tend to be sort of on on a slightly deeper path you know to really understand suffering and so I think that has made me an empath because I can understand what people are going through and so I think there was just this moment where I was looking at myself and I was like this is just not me. I I, I just you know I don't really care about this in the way that I used to and it feels really silly and a lot of it started to feel just a little bit surfacey and a little bit superficial and I, I think I had this idea that I needed to just turn my back on the fashion world and DJing and, and do something completely different. And that wasn't true. What I needed to do was I just needed to bring in more of that other side of myself. And I, and that really started with just kind of coming out of the closet and saying, I have epilepsy and realizing that I had a, you know, not a, a huge platform and not a huge following, but I, I had a, a, a significant enough following that I could share my story and it could make a difference. It could make a difference to other people out there that didn't have anyone to look to because there just aren't a lot of people that are publicly speaking about epilepsy because of the stigma. You know, growing up, I remember there was talk of Elton John having epilepsy. I remember Rick Mail, one of my favorite comedians, had epilepsy. There were these people, there was all the talks, about, no one spoke about it though. You know, and that's really tough when you want to, it doesn't have to be some superstar, but just someone that's sort of speaking publicly and and, and kind of going about their life and saying like, hey, I'm doing cool stuff with my life, but I also have epilepsy. And so I think I just wanted to be a voice that represented the community. And I think ultimately, you know, fighting for patients that are the most vulnerable, like my sister, that don't have the ability to fight for themselves. And so, so you know, it's been such a crazy journey. And I think in the end with DJing, I did actually start getting quite bad anxiety at gigs. And it was so funny because I mentioned before when I was younger and I was much more sort of like gung-ho and, ballsy and then I you know uh, once I'd been doing it for a a long period of time I started to really really struggle with it and I think I was just becoming more and more sensitive and just needing to lean into this other part of myself which wanted to I guess just give back and really wanted to connect with other people that were sort of on somewhat of a similar path.
1: And now what you're doing and what you have been doing Chelsea is amazing and something that I knew very little about until I started learning about what you've been doing and am I right in saying that the only thing that can stop seizures is medical cannabis?
0: Well so not generally but you know I think cannabis cannabis is really just another tool in the toolbox. Cannabis is you know a medicine and needs to be treated like you know another drug so it is it does have anticonvulsant properties but it will work for some and it won't work for others it's not a one-size-fits-all and i think you know this is kind of the challenge and and something that i've been faced with as i've sort of shared my journey and my experience with discovering cannabinoids that are the active compounds in the cannabis plant that are having a therapeutic effect on my epilepsy the challenge is that people see and read and hear about this whether it's from me, whether it's from someone else, whether it's press, media, and they think it's this its this miracle drug. And, you know, it has been for me, but it is just another medicine. You know, in, in my case, it's just been such an incredible gift because it is natural and it's much safer for the body than the drugs that I was taking, the pharmaceuticals I was taking before, and it doesn't come with the same side effects. And not only am I finding that it's treating my seizures, but it's also helping regulate my endocannabinoid system and put my body into homeostasis, which is helping my sleep, my anxiety. So, you know, I say it, it's not a miracle drug. It for Cannabis for me really has been a real, real miracle. And then in my sister's case, we haven't had the opportunity to try it, which is incredibly frustrating. And we know that there was a change in legislation in the UK in 2018 that cannabis was legalized for medicinal use but unfortunately still the fact remains that only a handful of patients have access to medical cannabis. We don't you know there's very very poor access on the NHS. My sister lives in an NHS run facility at the at the National Epilepsy Society and because the NHS are not yet on board and there are very very restrictive guidelines that the body nice has released it means that physicians are not prescribing it there's a lot of fear around prescribing it you know i think that is for many reasons there's a huge stigma with medical cannabis there is you know there the fear of of, of risking you know doctors losing their license losing their licenses from insurance reasons the research is still somewhat limited and so you know we're up against a lot of roadblocks, and and that's really why I'm fighting for for patient access. So for patients like my sister to gain access, not privately but through the NHS. You know, not just through the private sector. There are now more and more prescriptions being prescribed privately, where there are more private pain cl- clinics being open in the UK. But unfortunately, it's just not happening. Quick enough. And you know, with the government changing the legislation, this essentially sort of dangling the carrot um, and and not following through. And it was an incredibly tough time for patients that got their hopes up and thought that they might have access. So yeah, so in in my case, you know, I I can really, really happily say that I've been seizure-free since I started using CBD, but some patients will have to take take it in conjunction with other medications like it's it's very personalized and it's a you know a lot of fine-tuning needs to be done and we still we still know very little about this plant i mean there are over 125 active cannabinoid compounds and we're really only talking about two of them which is cbd and thc um, and there is just so much more to learn and discover from this plant and we just need more research and, and, and better understanding, and I think that we need better patient access, and we're just not there yet, which is frustrating.
1: And I wanted to ask you about these your your fears as an adults when I emailed you asking you know if you could just talk a bit about these fears and you said you had you have a fear that your own family will be ill. and I was wondering if this has Im- impacted your decision in in starting your own family
0: yeah i think that's definitely something that i'm kind of up against right now i would really like my own child um to have my own child and we didn't touch upon this yet but i spent you know about 4 years making this documentary which focuses on, on epilepsy and medical cannabis and really, you know, um, at the heart of it is, is a story about my sister and I and two sisters. And during our time shooting this documentary, we found out that my sister and I both have a specific genetic mutation. And, and that means that we made the link that it, you know, it is genetic. And for many, many years, my parents were told that it wasn't genetic, which seems strange given both my sister and I have epilepsy, although neither of my parents have it. So finding out this information, although in some respects it, you know, it should be empowering because it means that I can make more informed decisions. It has meant that I'm, I'm trying to have a child and I'm trying to, to go about it through, an, uh, through IVF and, and do um, an embryo selection. So you can select the embryo without the specific gene, but because this gene is still so, um, it's just such a new discovery we actually have to get a specific license to be able to even do the embryo selection. And just trying to, to, to go about this, it's it's so tough. I still haven't, you know, been trying to make progress in the last six months and feel like I am you know, haven't made any progress, but also for my parents, because it meant we had to find out who had the gene and it was my dad. And, you know, I think both my parents have a lot of guilt and a lot of their own emotions, which is crazy because of course it's not their fault. And so now we sort of have this kind of information, which at first was tough. And then I was like, No, 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 this is great. This means that you know I'm going to be able to avoid passing this on. Is now you know just the whole thing's become a bit of a <laughs> a bit of a tough situation because I'm not even sure if if we're going to be able to figure it out. And and I think you know I don't really want to do IVF. I mean I'm a complete hippie at heart, and I I have a very strong spiritual belief system. And I really believe that I chose this path, as did my sister. Um, And so when I really tap into that feeling of, you know, I've chosen this path for many reasons, uh, because I wanted to grow and because I wanted to learn, I really feel it isn't my path to have a child that also has epilepsy. But then I want to take every precaution possible. And becoming pregnant and then having that, that potential fear looming of, you know, I might have a severely uh, disabled child is, is petrifying. So, of course, I'm like, OK, if I, if I go the IVF route, it's um, it's a safer, a safer bet. But it's just, you know, if it was just about passing my epilepsy on, I, I don't think it would feel the way it does. But it's just that things have been really, really challenging with my sister. And, and you know, she is incredibly unwell. And I just don't know if I have the capacity to care for a child um that is as unwell as my sister it's just one of those we all know our boundaries and i think for me that's very much a feeling of i just don't think i'd be able to cope and so i'm trying to do you know everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen but then you know up against all of these different roadblocks and i just think it's a, such a hard thing for anyone when you want to have a child and you 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 know you're you're desperate to be a mother and you just feel like why are all these barriers in the way you know why is this this so challenging
1: Yeah, I think it's so important that you're speaking out about this as well, Chelsea, and so brave, because I think being a woman at the best of times is imperfect and it's messy and um, especially at the time, you know, I'm at that stage in my life as well when all my friends are having children and I want children too and, and no one really teaches you that stuff you know about how actually it can be really hard it's not easy it's not doesn't just happen so I think it's um yeah amazing that you're that that you are speaking out about it and inspiring so many people and I'm actually wondering how you how you found this courage and self-belief to to
0: stand up and be heard (laughs) that's a good question you know I think I can remember the first moment where I sort of came out about having epilepsy. And I I remember going to the Glamour Awards. This might sound funny, but I went to the, the Glamour Awards in New York a number of years ago. And I remember seeing all these incredible female advocates and activists, really, really inspiring women speak. Um, and I was incredibly moved by you know what I heard that evening. And it was like a light bulb switch just went off in my head. And I went home that night and I just, it was just like this really profound feeling where I just felt like I need to come out about, about my epilepsy. And, you know, I'm sort of saying that as if I had kind of, you know, I was some sort of big celebrity with like millions of followers and and that wasn't the case at all, but I, I, I just knew I had a small platform and I, I, I knew that I could be using that to do some, some good and it was it was such a healing experience for me it was like uh, the more that i got involved and advocated for epilepsy and and shared my story the more you know i was healing kind of the inner child within me i think uh, i needed to do that and i needed to kind of combine these two sides of myself um and i realized there was just so much that could be done and the power of vulnerability and sharing you know people really really underestimate that you know, I, I think a lot of people have this mindset of, well, what can I do, just little me in the world? You know, I can't really make a difference. And and I think, I I think that is is just incredibly incorrect. We have the power to help so many people and to inspire so many people, and it can be as simple as 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 sharing, you know, your your struggles. The moment that really changed me. For the, for the rest of my life, I mean, you know, I could say it's the first seizure, but also um, the first time that I ever tried CBD. I mean, that was really profoundly impacted my life and then um, set out a new sort of kind of trajectory for me in terms of my work as uh, as an advocate and activist. And so, you know, my first experience with using that plant um, medicinally and, and therapeutically, I think, really, really was was. A catalyst for you know my work to to come and and so my discovery of 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 medical cannabis and being able to use this plant as a medicine was probably one of the most profound moments that kind of shaped shaped my life.
1: Yeah, Chelsea, we are coming to near the end now, which I hate because I've been I'm enjoying this conversation so much. It's it's um I'm it's so fascinating, but I really wanted to ask you about how you you are now publicly speaking about your experience with um, endometriosis, which again is something that people do not talk about enough. And I quickly wanted to ask you how how your journey led you to this
0: place. So I was diagnosed with endometriosis in my late 20s, and they took seven years to diagnose me. So it's, you know, one in nine women suffer from this condition and just... You know, for those that don't know what it is, essentially it's where tissue similar to tissue that lines the womb grows either on the exterior wall of the womb or in other areas that it shouldn't in the body um, and can lead to infertility. It can, you know, cause patients to have really severe menstrual pain, pain during intercourse, um, bloating, swelling. And, and yeah, it just just sort of like I mentioned with epilepsy, but probably even worse, it's um, incredibly hard to diagnose. You can't diagnose it through an ultrasound. It has to be through a laparoscopy, which is very invasive. And there is very little research. It's underrepresented, under-researched. Uh, and so, you know, average diagnosis time is is seven and a half years. In my case, it was seven years. And cannabis has really, really helped me with managing my endo pain and i discovered it through my epilepsy i was using cannabis to treat my epilepsy and i'd been off my pharmaceuticals for about a year and i noticed my endo pain improving and it took me some time to connect the dots at the time i was working on the documentary and started to see some interesting research coming out of israel specifically on endometriosis using cbd and that's when I, I sort of realized, huh, maybe this is actually to do with, you know, my my intake of, of, of cannabinoids. And so that's when I kind of began to deep dive and test other products, um, topicals, ingestibles, intravaginals. And when I discovered a suppository product, an intravaginal product, that is when my endometriosis pain really started to improve. And I, you know, I was... Suffering for many many years. I used to vomit from the pain around my period and I would pass out from the pain I ended up in the emergency room a bunch of times. I had already previously had this laparoscopy surgery and you know as crappy as my story is um, I've now met women that have had up to five laparoscopies. Some women are having hysterectomies That's how bad the pain is, you know women of childbearing age. So Again, so fortunate that I discovered cannabinoids, that they've been an incredible tool, not just for my epilepsy, but for my endometriosis. I still suffer from pain, but it is nothing like it used to be. I don't pass out anymore. I don't vomit. I can manage it by using cannabinoids and and, uh, ibuprofen. And really, that's been the catalyst for co-founding Looney, which is a women's health business um, that is trying to support women through their menstrual cycles, through product and education. And we are set for launch in September. And one of our hero products is is an intravaginal product. And we just felt that there was so much improvement that could be done um, and that there was real, we needed to develop products that had real medical input and that actually had some testing around the safety and efficacy of the products. And so that's kind of where we're at. And there's, you know, lots more to come on Looney, but we're really, really excited and uh, to have the opportunity to hopefully help other women that uh, suffer from menstrual pain. So
1: Chelsea, we're coming to an end. We're at the end and I have these questions that I ask everyone and I would love to ask you. What is the book in your life that has given you belief and hope? Many
0: Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss.
1: Who has inspired you the
0: most? So many. Um, I would say currently, uh, Carly Barton. Um, She's at the forefront of patient access to medical cannabis in the UK and was the first person in the UK to receive a prescription. And she has set up Carly's Amnesty, which is in collaboration with police, working with the Home Office to petition for non-prosecution agreements for patients forced to grow their own supply. What is something
1: that has improved your life? This could be a habit or a routine. Yoga,
0: practicing yoga. And what would you do if you were not afraid? If I was not afraid, oh my gosh, it's such a hard one. I mean, I think if I was not afraid, just I'd probably attempt to have a child naturally if I was not afraid.
1: Would you say that was your biggest fear at the moment?
0: Yeah, I think my biggest fear right now would be not being able to have a child and not being able to have a healthy child. That feels like the, that that's at the forefront of my mind. So I answer that question. I mean, I'm thinking if I wasn't fearful, maybe I would just, I would abandon my work and, and go and live in the mountains for a couple of years. But, you know, being realistic and sort of present, I would say that if I didn't have any fear, I would just... I would try and attempt to have a child naturally and avoid the IVF process thank you Chelsea so
1: much for coming on fear itself you are a wonder thank you so much for having me Cressida thank you thanks to Chelsea Leyland for joining me on the podcast next week I'll be speaking to presenter and entrepreneur Jamie Lane keep up to date by liking reviewing and subscribing to fear itself on your favorite podcast app I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations, or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Guiyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller, and Connor Foley, with music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening.